Two years ago, Americans watched in horror as a crisis unfolded at the Kabul airport. She was tear gassed and beaten. Images of thousands desperate to escape Taliban oppression filled our news feeds. More than 80,000 Afghans made it to America. But the story didn't end there. It was very cold. There was no power, no heat. Who would help our newest neighbors? I'm Andrea Smartin. In Stranger Becomes Neighbor, you'll hear the stories of some remarkable refugees who left their homes and their dreams behind only to start over from zero. Their only possession was three blankets. And you'll meet Americans who stepped up to help them. You want me to come when you deliver your baby. What can one person do in the face of an international disaster decades in the making? That's Stranger Becomes Neighbor. Find us at kslpodcast.com, follow us on Apple Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen. Welcome to the Utah Puck Report. I'm your host, Jay Stevens. Today we have a couple special guest hosts. We've brought back Ben Wilner, and I probably won't even make fun of him the whole time he's here. Ben, welcome to the show. How are you? Uh, we're good. We're good. Thanks for coming on. I brought you on because we're going to talk, be talking about hockey equipment, and I know that nobody, like, you're the, you're the most, like, hockey equipment men's league guy I've ever known. I'm a bit of a diva. He is a bit of a diva. And then a very special guest, uh, and we're excited to have you on the show, is Jordan Parisi. Jordan. How's it going, guys? Welcome, man. It's It's been a long time since I was here. I think that, well, especially all three of us in a room together, we were at uh, the HDA Hockey Development Academy. Yeah. In, was it in Murray? Is that where you were doing yep, it? Yep, yeah, okay, in Murray. Cool. Yep. Yeah. Okay, and today's very special guest, the, the interview that we're going to have, we have Ron Kunisaki from Base Hockey. Ron, are you there? I'm here. All right. Hey, guys. Welcome to the Thanks show, man. Yeah, we're we're excited to have you Glad on. And uh, I I know you've got uh, you were my boss for a while when I was <laughs> when I was a hockey guy with with innovative. But I want to get you just have so much knowledge, and what you guys are doing is so cool and so unique that I wanted to interview you and find out your you know how you got into hockey, and then we'll get into uh, your experience with the different equipment uh, manufacturing that you've done, and then what you're doing now. Does that sound like a good plan? Good plan. Let it rip. Okay. Whatever so, questions you have. All right. So first off, tell us about how you got into hockey. Were you a hockey player growing up? Uh, no, I wasn't. Uh, in my era when I grew up, because um, I'm over 60, in our area in Southern California, it was primarily baseball, basketball, and football. And um, hockey was just starting to start in some spots, uh, but it wasn't something that I was exposed to. So... Um, I got into hockey more as a business career, um, and as I got older and got involved with hockey, you know, I've done a little bit of roller hockey in the back uh, with my son, but for the most part, it's been business more than it was a, a hobby or, or a sport. So, how, but, did, uh, how did it come across as a, as a business opportunity for you? Did you like, how? Well, back, back, back in 1993, I started a company called Innovative uh, Golf, and we were making graphite golf shafts. We felt that there was a market for what we were doing and um, somewhere along the ways we met a couple of LA Kings at a golf tournament. We sponsored a hole and it was one of those long distance driving holes and I remember Dave Taylor coming up and looking at our golf cast and asking whether we thought about maybe ever doing something in hockey and he was always a Sherwood guy. 
Um, and we said, no, not really. We don't play hockey. He said, well, you know what? I play hockey, and I've got the hockey background. Why don't you go ahead and make some hockey sticks or shafts and blades, and I'll go ahead and test them. So he ordered up a couple of replacement blades from Sherwood. We made a couple of shafts, and um, from there it was just that was the time where probably it was a year or two into Gretzky using the Easton aluminum shaft and people making like Sherwood wood blades um, and um, graphite was just being experimented with. Um, and that's kind of how we got into hockey. Um, and then in 1996, we actually started innovative hockey and we started making, um, at that point, just hockey shafts. Okay. Well, that's weird. I didn't, I didn't realize that that's how that all came about. We lost you for just a second, but I think we got most of the story there. Um, so 1996, you start up Innovative Hockey. And now you you start off, you already have guys in the NHL. That's I mean, was that your primary oh, clientele? No. no, when we started off, um, we were probably um, right there with um, a company called Fontaine. And oh, yeah. um, Easton also was coming out with his ultra ultralight um, shaft. And we both, we all three of us hit the market kind of at the same time. Fontaine kind of became Coho, um, and then, you know, Easton. And we all went out there, and, and basically um, um, everybody had either a little bit heavier shaft than they wanted or maybe some breakage. Um, I think the ultralight with Easton's marketing really was the one that developed the market. Um, so for us, we were a new alternative. Um, the first guy that I probably had play the stick, play the shaft, was uh, Alex Kovala. Um, but right out of the heat of that was Sergei Fedorov. Um, and they both loved the way it felt. They both loved our, we had something proprietary us called polar fiber, which was a, a special kind of grip on the, on the shaft. Um, and one thing led to another, and probably after the first season, we probably had 20 or 30 NHLers. Um, and at that point, it was a lot lower key. And um, we, we kind of felt like we, we were at the right place at the right time. And, and uh, we were on the front edge uh, of that graphite wave that eventually took over the industry. Um, it was really when the synergy came out that kind of took over um, wood, and within a couple of years there wasn't much wood, and it was almost all uh, graphite shaft, graphite blade, or probably more, more, more accurately, one piece sticks. Right. Um. So now, at one point, you basically had the entire Detroit Red Wings organization using the stick too, right? Well, we had quite a few. Fedorov uh, was was um, pretty influential. I think his first game that he played it. He scored a hat trick, and it was all over the news, and it was all over the Detroit, uh, I think, newspapers. And right smack dab in the middle was a picture of innovative, and um, it, it really took off from there. So uh, that was a really uh, great start for us. Kovalev was great to have because he was in the Stanley Cup playoffs that year, and he got us a lot of press. So uh, from there, we kind of had our niche, and we kept growing. We weren't quite the marketing beast that Easton was, um, and um, Toho kind of struggled as well, but um, at the end of the day, um, we, we started to develop a graphite blade, uh, which then led to not only a blade in the shaft, but also a fused one-piece stick, which is kind of what the original synergy was that kind of took the industry by storm. Right, I remember uh, that. So at first, with all the research and development, was it basically just trying to figure out a weight and... Uh, and a way to make it work and not so much to make it work better? Just basically uh, trying to recreate the wood stick instead of doing, you know, shooting harder or... Um, it, it, was a, it was a combination of, of trying to get um, the same feel 
um, trying to get something that um, actually loaded up and shot harder, and then trying to get something that lasted long enough to make sense of uh, spending more money. So typically, at that time, a guy would order 12 sticks in the NHL. His trainer would already assume that probably only three were going to make it into the game. Nine were going to be typically practice sticks. And it wasn't because those nine were bad or shot poorly, but they weren't consistent and they weren't, according to the player, game sticks. So probably, you know, 75% of what the NHL was buying was never going to see the NHL game ice. And so they were paying a lot more for their game sticks. So when they started to do the math, if they could get something that performed, was more consistent, then maybe every stick that they ordered would actually be a gamer. And um, we started to see much more openness to the NHL to go ahead and get shafts, blades, and sticks into the players' hands because they they not only got a stick that was lighter, um, shot harder, um, but also more consistent. Um, and, and consistency and performance is, 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 is as important of a feature as it is weight, kick point, whatever else that you can go ahead and point to. So um, the... the uh, the market kind of took off, and before we knew it, we we were um, in huge demand, and um, we had a couple of big companies approach us about private labeling, and we decided that it would be good for our factory to uh, private label for Bauer. So we took Bauer's uh, initial stab at, at, at hockey shafts, graphite hockey shafts, and they were at that time pushing a product called the Triflex, and... Um, we kind of reinvented that Triflex and put them on the map with, we felt, a better shaft and blade and a one-piece stick. Um, and, and quite frankly, we couldn't make the one-piece sticks fast enough for many years with Bauer. They were trying to catch up to Easton. So um, when you take a look at where the stick has come, mostly it's in the fine-tuning of the manufacturing process and the materials, and the materials being primarily either the resin that holds the fibers together or the fibers. So... Over the course of a lot of years, our vendors, our suppliers, as well as, as fibers work, um, what resins work the best. Um, a lot of this is trying to figure out having something that has good shear strength as well as good impact strength, um, and then that combination being as light as possible. Yeah, that's that's something... All that stuff is interesting. And, and just to step back a little bit of what you said, I, I don't think a lot of people understand that you actually, as as innovative, were manufacturing sticks for your competitors at the time, right? So you made Bauer, and didn't you make CCM at one time as well? Uh, no, we we never did do CCM. We felt like we couldn't do both Bauer and CCM at the same time. Okay. Um, so we we kind of picked our horse, and it was Bauer. Uh, we we have done we have done some private labeling for some others before Bauer, uh, but once Bauer stepped in, we were literally running three shifts a day, seven days a week truck would pull up every week and we'd go ahead and load that truck full of hockey sticks and um, we just couldn't we just couldn't keep up literally so we went from um, a factory that was about 50,000 square feet to a factory that was about 250,000 square feet and we, wow. we were starting to basically we were starting to probably push out the door over 10,000 hockey sticks a month um, wow. and uh, it just was it just was never enough so um, but that's when it the, 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 the demand was at its peak uh, from our standpoint and it was good to have that volume help us grow our business because 
I don't think most people realize just how expensive marketing hockey sticks or marketing in the NHL, et cetera, is. And when you're going up against the likes of Bauer and CCM and today Warrior that do that marketing very well, um, we felt it was a better blend for our business to have our own brand as kind of a niche thing with our own limited marketing together with the volume of some private labeling. Yeah, and that, I think that's one thing that a lot of people probably don't understand. I, I've got a couple things. So one is that, um, obviously, Bauer was with Nike forever, and that, so you have shoe money behind there, and it seems like they had endless marketing money. And Warrior is, is New Balance shoes, and it seems like the shoe companies came in and started doing all this huge advertising. And then um, it just became crazy. And then we talk, you were talking about the, uh, the marketing, and Jordan, this, this is a story from back in your day is when I was an equipment rep, and I was repping innovative and trilage hockey, I was North Dakota, University of North Dakota, where you were there, is one of my places. And you had a guy, uh, he played for the Kings, Green, Matt Green? Matt Green, yep. Matt Green was one of the players. I went to him, and I was like, hey, use these innovative shafts. And, and he loved them. He absolutely loved the innovative shaft, and we got him in them. And the equipment guy's like, no way. There's no, Matt Green is a lumberjack. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and they're like, there's no way we're putting them in $100 stick. And back then, they were 100 bucks. Yeah. And they're obviously more than that now. He's like, but there's no way I'm giving this guy that just goes and cuts down guys in front of the net. He doesn't even use a stick to, like, it basically is a balancing pole or a kickstand, and he uses it to cut other guys down. There's no way I'm putting them in a graphite shaft. So we, we ran into that stuff a lot, too. With, it was cost prohibitive for a lot of the other teams. but And, and I, w- I was actually going to chime in and ask Ron, like, how, you know, we come from an area of, of right, these sticks were 100 bucks or something like that. These shafts were 100 bucks, And then, you know, I'm going to be 37 years old, but it, it never seemed to me, you know, for the first 10 years that I was playing that sticks were that expensive, and all of a sudden it just got completely out of control. And, you know, now kids are going in and, and buying a $350 stick like it's nothing. But back when when we were growing up and playing, and even when, like, uh, you know, the, the first wave of graphite sticks were coming out, they were nothing even close to what the prices are now. So how is that... Is it all because of marketing that everybody has to jack all these things up? And then you also hear that, uh, you know, these hockey companies are losing money. And I, it's hard for, for somebody like me to imagine them losing money. How does it work for, like, why do you think that's going on? Well, um, the cost of doing business in hockey is um, higher than anybody that's not in the business could understand. And part of it is the wide variety of, models or SKUs that they have to carry. For example, if you take a look at hockey sticks alone, for the number of hockey sticks that a store will sell, they've got to carry quite a few flexes, quite a few curves, and then they've got to carry all the different sizes, and that's just one model of, let's say, Bauer. And Bauer might have three models. So when you multiply all of those numbers out and the store wants to carry a couple of each, that's hundreds of sticks. And then you've got to carry the same for CCM, the same for Warrior, and when they only sell 300 sticks a year, it really becomes a huge cash flow burden that stores look at it and say, holy smokes, for what I make off this thing, it's just not really worth it because I've got to carry three times more than I can really sell. And I've got to have all this variety or else people aren't going to come to my store. So when you take a look at one of the things that the hockey industry today is dealing with is how to rein back the size of the offerings so that it makes sense for how many skates, sticks, gloves, whatever are sold. So our industry was uh, not very financially disciplined for a long time. And what people offered 
was way more than the industry really could absorb. So you you have a um, very competitive environment between the big guy CCM, which was you know at some point owned by Reebok, New Balance owned Warrior, and then Nike owned Bauer. So these three behemoths would 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 battle with one another and. Um, some of that inventory got out of control. But one of the things that's happening today is people are trying to figure out how to lower their costs. And because $300 sticks, nobody would have ever thunk it. Right. And when you take a look at how to reduce that $300 cost, one of the ways is to reduce the amount of cash needed to support that business. And one of, one of the ways to do that is don't carry so many different models. So that for the manufacturer, it's less of a financial burden. For the stores, it's less of a financial burden. And that can be the passed on as a savings. Well, if you take a look at all of that, that means that the customer today is going to basically be pushed into one of three curves, one of two flexes, as compared to in the past what they've been able to go into a store and and find. So that is where people are starting to try to figure out how to save money. But you think, how can a guy, how can a company sell a stick for 300 bucks and not make money? Right. Right. Even if you, even if, if all you're looking at is trying to save money on, on inventory costs, is that really all that's there? Is that the lowest hanging and, and the biggest hanging? And the answer is yes. So when I step back and take a look at it, I, I can take a $300 stick, and then you ask yourself, how is that sold? Most of it's sold through stores. So what's the store really paying for it? Let's just say on average they're paying 150 And by the time you take a look at 150 today in Canada, and you take a look at the Canadian dollar being $0.75 cents to the U.S. dollar, by the time you get... $150 Canadian converted over to U.S., you might be looking at 110 bucks. So by the time you take a look at 110 bucks, and then you take a look at paying for manufacturing, there's really not a whole lot of money left because when you take a look at the manufacturing cost between the labor, the graphite, and everything else, um, you're, you're probably pushing, um, you know, somewhere in the ballpark, depending on the manufacturing plan, you're probably pushing 75 to 100 bucks. So... Um, graphite is expensive, labor is expensive, the, num- the number of molds that you need are expensive, and everything just keeps going up. So, and, and how much uh, does it cost to be in the NHL? If, you, if you're going to have a stick logo in the NHL, how much is that these days, do you know? Well, the NHL has an on-ice licensing fee, and I don't remember what it is, but it's, it's, uh, uh, it's, it's at least five or six figures. So, and that's for each category. Right. So... Um, if you want to be just in the stick category, you've got to pay that on ice fee, and then um, you got to pay it also for a, a skate category. Um, so it's not uncommon for for Bauer and CCM and Warrior that are in all the categories to probably have an on ice fee total budget of two three hundred thousand bucks, I would imagine. But we haven't paid it in a long time. But but for Bauer to have their name on the ice um, for all the categories, I. I I, I'm guessing that it's probably somewhere north of a quarter million dollars. Jeez, man, that's wow. that's unbelievable. And then you've got to pay guys like Jordan, your brother. When I was with Innovative, and I knew he was, a, it was a battle to get him. And we had the trillage, yeah, right. And I was trying to get him to use the trillage, and I was. He all of a sudden he big time me, and I wasn't doing. With him. <laughs> I wasn't oh, doing. I wasn't dealing with your brother anymore. All of a sudden, I had to deal with his agent. His so he had two different agents. He had like his his player agent and then he had it that agent out of new york or whatever that just handled his endorsements yep and i'm like okay well i had zach in these gloves all through shattuck in north dakota why can't he use the gloves now and they're like oh yeah he can use them 25 grand 
<laughs> they want they wanted twenty five grand for and then they wanted twenty five grand for the stick. So not only does a, a company like Bauer or Warrior have to pay the NHL a hundred grand to put a stick in and then another hundred grand to put gloves in, now they got to pay a, a player. And that was ten years ago that I was dealing with Zach. Zach's a bigger player now, so now it's probably. You know, he's going to demand more money to use the stick. Yeah, I was going to say, Ron, you did a tremendous job of explaining that. And, uh, you know, especially for me, not really understanding the dynamics behind all of it. But I think that now, you know, anybody that listens to this will understand how these things get, how the costs go up so quickly. Um, and in addition, how it, these it, how these people may uh, lose money. It's a, it's a distribution multiples. So, for example, if you take a look at the Amazon phenomena. The Amazon phenomena is basically the world saying, if we can cut out the distribution cost, which are the layers of, of dealers, distributors, et cetera, in between the manufacturer and the consumer, then that's the soft target. So what I take a look at is that in the hockey industry, we're still trying to grapple with how to deal with selling directly to the consumers because that's really where the whole world is going. Yeah, um, I, I I don't see that hockey is going to be able to withstand Amazon or something like that any more than any other industry. So when you find out that gee, a hockey stick costs a hundred bucks to make, but I have to pay three hundred bucks for it, well, anybody that's in business and marketing will tell you well, that's that's a reasonable that's right. a reasonable markup <laughs> scenario. So um, and it, and the sad part for me is that if you take a look at the stores. And you ask, it's a real challenge, and they're struggling. And then if you ask Bauer and CCM and Warrior if they're making money, well, you know, Bauer's financial troubles were public because they were a public company for a while, and people saw that, holy smokes, Bauer's selling skates for $1,000 and sticks for 300 bucks, and they're not making money. And I can tell you that Bauer was one of the best-run, best people, and they were, they were doing it as well as they could do it. But the financial parameters that they felt they were working under um, made it very, very, very difficult to be profitable. And if Bauer can't be profitable with what they had, and they had a huge marketing uh, tidal wave going on, they were they were the brand for sticks as well as skates, and yet they weren't making money. You got to be kidding me! And no, no one would believe it. But you know what? Public figures are public. The public numbers are public numbers when you're a publicly held company. So at the end of the day, um, it's an industry that needs some financial restructuring, and that's what's going on. Behind the scenes, if you sat in board meetings and you figured out what they're talking about, they're talking about how can we massage this model so that we can basically squeeze out a profit. And there, there again, when I say squeeze, you're thinking, how can you have to worry about squeezing out a profit when you're charging $1,000 for a pair of skates and $300 for a hockey stick? Oh, it's crazy. So what does that do for a diva like Ben? Like, Ben... <laughs> How many? How are you going to figure out what you use now? What do you? Because you yeah. have like three different brands of sticks on you last night. Yeah. <laughs> were they all, Were they all the same curve? Uh, yeah, same curve, okay. same flex, just different sticks. Okay. So I have a Warrior, a Bauer, and a True. All right. So how did you decide that those were that that was your curve? Uh, just kind of playing around, and like figuring out the way that I shoot and the way that I like to. Like, release the puck, like, off the toe. I like using more of a toe curve. Okay. So, but that's a lot of trial and error that, at 300 bucks a piece. Yeah. I I couldn't tell you the last time I paid 300 though. Right, I know. So, you gotta, you've got to deal. <laughs> well, and you're, you're part of the problem. 
You're yeah, there. <laughs> I did, and that's what I was just going to ask Ron is like, not only do you have like the shops, but how are those guys competing against some of these other sites? Like I, well, sideline swap is a you know one. Like I know I'm not going to name drop them, take people away from you, but like there's so much competition there that for me, a consumer, like I have to buy my own sticks. There's no way I'm going to the shop and paying three ten, three twenty for the new warrior stick that came out. Like not a chance. I'm right. gonna figure out a way to get it cheaper. Absolutely. And that's that's the world of, of, of Amazon and the world of <clears throat> instant information on your phone, instant information on your laptop and five minutes worth of research. So who's not gonna go do that research whether you're buying a hockey stick or you're buying um, anything else? And that's what the world is the, the world is. So when I take a look at it, unless you make a structural change at how you approach it, I don't think there's any future in it. So when I take a look at a 10-year-old kid walking through the door, and I look at that pair of skates and I think, holy smokes, that, that's a $500 pair of skates, and he's got two sticks, that's another four or $500. I'm thinking that kid's already got $1,000 just walking through the door. And, you know, that is really, really, really cost prohibitive for most of the, the, the hockey-playing public, right? People that want to play hockey have no idea what financial hill they're about to climb. Right, because it's another fair, fair. ten grand to play for the season if you're going to play travel team or at least 500 if you're going to play rec or play house. Right, right. So when I started Innovate, when I started base hockey, when, well, when I started base hockey, I started it with Cliff Ronning and Ally Brady, and we were talking about being a pro rep and going into locker rooms and the pros get for the most part custom everything and they they should they're they're the top players in the world and they get performance enhancing equipment and it's our job to place that in there and basically get the brand exposure and then have that brand translate to brand demand pulling the product off the shelf at the stores that's kind of the traditional way of marketing but we were talking about how most of the world aren't, aren't NHL players. Wouldn't it be nice if we could do kind of something similar for the, the amateur player? So we came up with a way to do what we call a fitting, and a fitting is similar to golf. You go in and get fitted and find out what flex you actually shoot best with, what curve you shoot best with, what lie you shoot best with, what flex points you shoot best with, and there are some other features that we've added on on top of that. But if a guy in 45 minutes could figure out what he shoots best with, that investment in that 45 minutes is worth its weight in gold because now when you go buy a Bauer, CCM Warrior, or a base stick, at least you know what you shoot best with. And today, it's much more important to get the spec right than it is to get a brand because, quite frankly, at the top level, everybody makes a good stick. Whether it's a Bauer, CCM Warrior, if you go buy their top-level sticks, they're all really good. There are subtle differences, but they're all really good. Are you going to play different, shoot different between the three? Mm, pretty subtle differences. But if you had a, a P92 curve on one and a P88 curve on another, you're going to shoot a lot different. And if you don't know which one you shoot best with, you're basically just guessing. And I can tell you that NHLers, even NHLers, are guessing. We spent a, a season with the Columbia Blue Jackets, and we were their um, staff shooting coaches and stick coaches and we spent a lot of time going through what was best for each NHLer at, uh, on, the, on the jackets and they would spend hours like kids in candy store trying different curves because until they try to shoot it it's just con conceptual and that's what we realized is that we can see stuff on the computer 
But if we couldn't translate that to actually having them shoot it, and they'd have the whole ice, they'd shoot it at slow speed, stationary, passing, receiving passes, puck handling. And when they found the right one, you'd look at their face and then you'd know that that was the right combination. So if NHLers don't know what they play best with, but they kind of have a pretty good idea, you can imagine how amateurs feel. So it's one thing if you're spending 30 bucks for a wood stick and you got 10 wood sticks in the back that you don't like, but it's another thing where each experiment is 300 bucks. Right. So and that's what I was saying with Ben, is it gets, it, that adds up so quick. And so I, and I, I want to kind of give the introduction. You, you kind of already, you already told the story of base and how you guys do it, but I wanted to say, so Innovative didn't just disappear. You got, Innovative got bought out by Warrior, Correct. Correct, correct. So that correct. company's still around. The company you started is still around and still doing really well and is one of the top three. And then they, you had a non-compete. So you had to not be in the market for how many years? For a year. Um, oh, so one year. Okay. What happened, yeah, yeah. Um, that's just, that's, that's, that's kind of what the agreement was. Plus that's, that's kind of forced upon Warrior based upon California employment law. But yeah, so back, back in 2005, I sold innovative to warrior worked for them for three years to kind of basically transition what i knew and, and our innovative team over to warrior um and then i uh proceeded to tell them that uh, you know i'm kind of an entrepreneur a small company guy and i love trying new things so i said you know what um you guys have been great to me i've had a great time they're, they're, they're the best people in the world but i didn't want to end my working life as, as, as an employee of Warrior. Um, and that's no reflection of Warrior. So um, I told them that I was moving on, gave them some time to transition, and actually wrote a memo uh, as, as a part of my exit interview laying out what I would do. And I laid out this scenario of starting a fitting custom hockey stick company. And they kind of looked at it and said, from a business standpoint, they didn't think it was very practical. So I moved on, spent a year kind of doing the things around the house. And then after a year, when my non-compete was over, um, I proceeded to build in a uh, base hockey with, with Cliff and, and, and Al. Yeah, and I, re- I remember when you guys first kind of came out. And I I'd had a, I told this story last night at the hockey rink. I, I'd had a, a session and where this was before base hockey, and I, I was watching a hockey game. And I, I want to say that I was at Shattuck St. Mary's watching AAA or, or their uh, their prep team, and I think they were the, and they, I'm I'm almost 100 percent sure I'm right, but I could be wrong. That I was with Cliff Ronning, and uh, I can't remember who the other little NHLer was, a smaller NHLer that was I can't remember his name. Anyway, we were watching Patrick Kane when he was playing. This is before everybody knew who he was, and Cliff watched him play and and said, "Oh, he just switched sticks. He just took a sample from. It could have been us because I was with Innovative, and it could have been with somebody else. I don't remember." But Cliff was watching the game and said, oh, he's not going to be able to do that pull move that he likes to do because that toe is different. And I was like, whatever, you don't... Like, how do you... <laughs> but uh, the same thing, I've watched games with your dad, with uh, with J.P. Parisi. I'd watch hockey games with him, and he... J- they just see the game at a different level. They see, like, I'm just a huge hockey fan, but I'm not a savant. And some people see it, like Prince sees music, right? Like, he sees it in colors and numbers. And uh, it was amazing to me because later in the game... Patrick Kane tried to pull his move that he always pulled back then, and it didn't work. And Cliff was like, "Yeah, that's if he would have had the that toe normal on his like he likes on his stick, he would have pulled that move." 
And it was amazing. And so later on, you come out with bass, and you have Cliff Ronning, who's amazing, and you had Ally Afraidy, who's terrifying, <laughs> but but also like terrifying from a goalie standpoint. And I sat there with with Al, and he was telling me how he takes slap shots, which is he he has one of the hardest slap shots in the NHL in, in the history of the NHL, and it's completely against what you always learned. And he was he was just telling me how much he relied on the stick and how like his technique, and he wouldn't close his bottom hand on the shot until right before the shot. So he, because the puck's going to move and there's all these variable, variables to what he's going to shoot, so he waits till right at the last minute to, to close his hand on the bottom of the stick. Interesting. Or, yeah, I thought it was amazing. But so you, you go in, you're like the master stick designer, and then you have these two other masters behind you, and then you start base hockey with these guys. And now you custom design sticks... And uh, you've been around for a while doing it. And is is L.A. your main main market, or or what's going on with base hockey now? And how can our listeners find out what stick they use? Because like I, Ben needs to learn some more. <laughs> ben needs a better stick. So how can we how can we help people get to you? Yeah, you know when we started this off, we we, we thought we would just have a fitting center in Vancouver, which is where Cliff lives. And we felt that if we needed to prove this out and we couldn't do it in Canada, then the business model wasn't quite ready to launch and expand. So we built a 5,000-square-foot fitting center in Burnaby, and uh, that became our, 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 our fitting center that we did kind of all of our initial uh, fine-tuning of the process with. And before we knew it, we had a fitting center in Calgary, then we had one in Edmonton, then we had one in Toronto, then we had one in Mo- Montreal, and... Um, that spread like like wildfire. Um, one of the things that I've learned in the, in the 10 years that I've been doing this is that you have to have a really good fitter. You have to have a really disciplined business approach. And learning how to scale this business up is really where the challenge is. Because if you got fitted by a guy that was mediocre, even though we have a process, your experience wouldn't be as viral and as great as if you got fitted by one of our, 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 our best fitters. Um, so... Um, one of the things that we're, we're still um, uh, learning is how to scale the business up so that everybody can get fitted. So, for example, if, if um, Ben came into our L.A. fitting center, um, he'd be on synthetic ice, he'd be on his skates, and the fitting process would take about 45 minutes. But in that 45 minutes, Ben would have a video of his snap, wrist, and slap shot, he would see how his shot compared to, let's say, Al and Cliff. We'd go ahead and take a look and analyze why we think the flex curve and line might be better off in a different spec. We'd put that together, let him shoot it, remeasure everything, and he'd see the difference. So in 45 minutes, you have a chance to see, learn, and try, and then conclude with, I'd say, probably 99.9% of our fittings end up in, in selling a stick. The question is, how can we put together a platform where we can de- deliver this fitting experience in more places around around North America? And that 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 is uh, that's that's part of the challenge. Yeah, that's got to be hard. You can't. I mean, you can train people, but then you have to have all the videos set up. So right now, you're just relying. I mean, because we're gonna we have all of our teams play in LA at some point. So I mean, but. That's not the only way to buy a stick from you. If, if, like, Ben knows he likes this curve right now and he likes this flex right now, he can still just jump on your website and buy that stick, right? 
You can absolutely. You can go to basehockey.ca, uh, www.basehockey.ca, and he can go ahead and um, order online himself, or he can call me, or he can call one of our, our customer service reps, and they'll walk him through it. Um, if um, you, you're you're lucky enough, we run different promos, and um, there might be a, a promotion going on where there might be a discount. Uh, sometimes we offer promos for the price of the stick and discounted, or we sometimes offer free shipping, but, you know, just like any other company, we've got different marketing campaigns that go on. Hey, Ron, so, I get, oh, I'm sorry. Ron, I was just going to ask you a question. So you have, let's just say that you have, uh, you know, whoever is listening to this or you have NHLers or whoever, um, and they come to you and they say, we would like a stick from you. Can, can you walk us through, you know, the process? And you mentioned a couple times on the focus of different types of shots. So is that your, is that your primary I guess your primary focus when somebody is looking at a stick, is it how does this guy shoot as opposed to how does he stick handle? Does he like to stick handle? Um, how's his passing? Uh, you know, like how are you determining what is the most important factor while they're choosing that stick? And and this is for like any little kid or whatever. Should they just go in there and say, oh, I shoot really well with this and that is the be all end all? Or should they say, well, how do I stick handle with this and, and determining different lies and things like that? we started fitting we have them we have each customer fill out a questionnaire and the questionnaire runs through what the fitter needs to know initially as his baseline and the fitter does ask what stick do you play with right now what do you like about it what don't you like about it what do you want to do better how do you currently shoot do you basically always have a hard time getting the puck up or do you always shoot over the net high or do you fumble passes you know you know are you able to shoot for your size and weight um, do you know how hard your shot is? Um, so we ask all these questions, and based upon those questions, um, we have already a pretty good idea of the direction that we're headed. Okay. So, for example, if you take a look at the way a kid shoots, he may be a, sh- a guy that shoots with more of a <clears throat> sweeping motion or versus a guy that basically has a real vertical motion and hits 12 inches behind the puck. He may be a guy that all he cares about is basically he's a defenseman, he just wants to hammer the puck. Or maybe it's a forward that doesn't take a whole lot of slap shots, but he wants to basically have more finesse and basically be able to get the puck up quicker. Um, so once you start to understand what that player is thinking he doesn't have in his current shot or, or stick handling, it gives you an idea of what direction you want to head. So for some people, you know, it's, it's, it's all about puck handling. They, 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 they kind of know what curve, but you know what? They're just not handling the puck. And, when you say toe curve, there's a multitude of toe curves that we have. Some have different rockers. Some have different lies. Some have pockets that are located just just millimeters different. Um, some are taller. Some are shorter. Um, some have more locked. They're more open than closed. Um, so all of that can make a difference as to just fine-tuning which toe curve you shoot best with. And if you could do a fitting with us, you get a chance to try all those, see all those, and that would be optimal. But... What we find is also pretty good is when you can go out and call one of our fitters and we can give you their numbers and you can pick their brain and say, look, I want to see if I can come up with a better choice than I'm currently using. They'll ask you what you use and they'll talk about it. And um, at the end of the day, it may be something that you want to try. One of the things, because, um, um, you know, we, we, we uh, uh, take a look at kind of where, where the market is trending and one of the trends that I see out there is that people are starting to realize that there's what we call in the industry a fused stick, and that's where we make a shaft and blade and we glue it or fuse it together. 
Uh, so our sticks are all that way. Uh, a lot of TCM sticks are that way. Um, Warrior makes them both ways, Fuse and, and Monocom. Bauer does mostly Monocom. But at the end of the day, the performance difference between the two is really, really negligible. And people are starting to realize, because they didn't grow up in the era of having shafts, then blades, and then one-piece sticks, that you can actually buy these things separate. So I have more and more people that are buying blades and shafts because that allows them to kind of experiment. And also, typically the blade is going to break before the shaft, and they can just replace the blade so it's much more uh, economical and provides more value. So I've got guys that buy practice blades and shafts, and they beat the crap out of it. They take a 1,000 shots a week with it, and they have their game stick that's a one-piece stick. I have guys that buy nothing but shafts and blades. And in fact, even today, Alex Kovalev, who um, goes to alumni games and stuff, he buys blades and shafts for me. He, he never went to a one-piece stick, and you got to believe us that we try to get him into a one-piece stick, but he swears up and down that the shaft and the blade shoot better, and he's always a shaft and blade guy. Interesting. So, if some, if some of the best hands in the world can't tell the difference or they think that blade and shaft is better, that tells me that it's more psychological to have a factory glue it together and have it look one piece versus you gluing it together with hot melt glue. So oh. um, I think that that's one of the things that's driving um, where people and what people are buying. Because when you take a look at it and you say, well, you know what, you're going to shop around. Well, shopping around also includes whether you buy a shaft and a blade or whether you buy a one piece stick. Because uh, you may find you, you may find the flexes you like, and you may never change that. But blades are something that you can't afford to go spend three hundred bucks on every time you want to try something. It's true. It's so true. You, so you're gonna so you're gonna go spend sixty five bucks to go try uh, Malkin's Pro Curve, which we have, and that might be something that you love. Um, so at the end of the day, that's a much better experiment than spending one hundred fifty or two hundred fifty or three hundred bucks for something that you're not quite sure you're gonna like. So we see a lot more a lot more of our current customers switching over to blades and shafts. Yeah, and that's like I was I thought it was really cool when I was looking at your guys' website today that you guys really, really focus hard on getting people the right stick that fits them, the right curve, the right lie, the rocker, like everything. You wanna fit that, like right size your customer perfectly versus just going to the store and buying the newest Warrior Bauer that's out. And that's got to be, like, really hard for you guys, though, and where the challenge is is because you're trying to educate people on this product and the process versus, hey, I want to use what Crosby uses. Correct. Correct. And, and I can tell you that um, Bauer, CCM, and Warrior do a tremendous job of brand marketing, and the power of the brand is very, very, very powerful. If you walk into a Bantam locker room, the power of that branding is really, really, really obvious. You see what every kid thinks is the top brand, and they all want to play that brand. And you know what? I don't discount how important that is, but from our standpoint, if that's where you're going to go, you're not really going to buy base anyways. But if you want to have something that you shoot better with, or you pass better with, or you shoot harder with, more accurate with, then... You're talking about performance, and that's where we feel we can earn our keep. So it is an education process. It is a lot slower way to build the company. But at the end of the day, that's where I think the future is headed anyway. So if we are going to go compete, I'd rather compete based upon helping a player perform better than being the hot brand this season. 
That's awesome. So, that's awesome. So that's that's kind of what we that's kind of what we chose to do, and uh, it is a steady, slower growth path. But you know what? Since we're manufacturing, um, we can basically offer all of these different things without driving ourselves nuts. If we were actually buying everything from a plant in China, like Warrior does sometimes, Bauer does a lot, CCM does a lot. It's not. It's just not feasible for them to go out there and offer the kind of choices and variety and, and customization that we do. They just, they just, they look at that as a uh, logistical nightmare. Well, and that's what gives you guys the strength. And, and we've got to wrap things up now. But we're also so on our Facebook page. We're going to create a, uh, a contest, and we're going to give away one of your sticks. So somebody's going to get the opportunity to use a base stick and and get, you know. Get in there and pick their brains and find the exact stick that's going to work for you. And, uh, Ron, thanks so much for being on the show today. Yep, thanks a lot, Ron. Yep, thank you. Thanks. And uh, for those of you who haven't subscribed yet, now is your opportunity to do so. It's super simple. All you got to do is text the word PUCK to 57500 or go to kslsports.com under podcasts. We're right there. Of course, we're on uh, 1035thearrow.com as well under podcasts. Uh, through all Bonneville Media, basically anywhere you see podcasts, you're going to see us. And you can get us anywhere that there is a podcast, uh, iTunes and Google Play, all that fun stuff. So make sure you do it. And for Ben, Jordan, and, of course, Ron Kunisaki from Base, make sure you guys are looking for the contest. And that is today's Utah Puck Report.